Our scripture readers have beautifully taken us deeper and deeper into the story of Good Friday. And in my time with you, I want to explain why the death of Jesus is good news and why this Friday is called Good Friday. And to do so, we're going to take a step back from the narrative and look at some later reflections on the meaning of the cross elsewhere in the New Testament. But first, I want to talk to you about the problem the cross is meant to address. If we don't understand the problem, then the solution will seem unnecessary. And so first, the problem. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, wrote these words. He said, first, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, they do not, in fact, behave that way. Then he says, these two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Lewis's idea, argued for at the start of his book, Mere Christianity, is that there is a moral law pressing down on us, one that goes beyond personal preference or societal norms. And this moral law implies a moral lawgiver who acts as an anchor point for moral values and duties. And the moral lawgiver is God. And our moral duties are expressed in God's commands. The problem for us is that we've broken God's moral law. Just think of the famous Ten Commandments. The second half of the Ten Commandments outline how we ought to treat one another, right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't covet. Jesus takes that teaching and he applies it to our hearts. He talks about contempt and lust. And these are good commands. I mean, if we follow these commands, many of the world's problems would disappear overnight. The issue is we don't follow these commands. We break them. So if the commands are good and we don't follow them, what does that make us? Bad? Flawed, imperfect, broken, sinful? Whatever word you want to use. That we're capable of greatness. We're made in the image of God but we're also capable of wretchedness. The famous author, G.K. Chesterton, once wrote an essay in response to this question. It was a contest. And so different people wrote in in response to this question. What is wrong with the world? And he had the shortest reply. He wrote, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours. And I think he won. It's like humans are remarkable, made in the image of God, but we've fallen from God in grace. We know the good, and we don't always do it. To quote the New Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's not just God's standards. We also fail to live up to our own standards. Like, imagine if on the day of our birth, a recorder was placed around our neck that only switched on when we pronounced moral judgments on another person or situation. If that same tape recorder was played on the day of our deaths, we would find ourselves 
both falling short of God's standards and the moral standards we consistently impose on others. It's not just parents who say, do what I say, not what I do. We've all done it at one time or another. We've all done it. And the point is this. It wouldn't be an alien code of ethics that condemns us at the end, but our own as well. And this reality puts us at odds with our maker and also at odds with our own conscience, which is why guilt and shame continues to plague the human condition. It's like it says in Romans chapter 7, although I want to do good, evil is right there in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Or as Ephesians 2, chapter 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And this is our problem. And it separates us from God and our true selves. And so the question becomes, I mean, this is the essential religious question. It's phrased in different ways in different traditions. But the question is, like, how do we solve the separation? Like, can we bridge the gap between God and us by our own goodness, right? Is, is my salvation based on my performance, right? My moral resume, how brightly I can polish up my halo, right? Is, if so, like how good do I have to be? Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds in the end? How many good deeds does it take to erase a really bad deed? Does one really bad action erase a lifetime of good deeds? Who decides? Like, how do I know? It's like sitting down for the most important entrance exam of your life without knowing what to study, what the questions will be, and what makes a passing grade. 50%? 70%? 100%? Maybe this is why we're always looking for people who seem worse than us. We're hoping God grades on a curve. And the result's not peace, but anxiety, not confidence, but existential angst, not grace, but guilt. And here's the good news. It's when I realize I'll never be good enough that I'm ready to experience the goodness of Good Friday. And so I want to get into it. I'm just going to give you really quick five reasons why Good Friday is good. Five reasons why Jesus died on a cross. That's the structure for this. We'll go quick. The first reason is this. Jesus died because God loves us. That we're made in the image of God. We're made for relationship with God. Our sin has ruptured that relationship. But God pursues us. In love, here's one of the most famous scriptures in the New Testament. For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And so, you know, Scripture says that there's one God, and this one God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father sends the Son in love. God the Son willingly lays down his life in love. And God the Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts. The cross is not about our loveliness, but God's love. 
That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself out of love for us. Jesus died willingly because God loves us. Second, Jesus died for our sins in our place. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important, utmost important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. That the cross is God taking our place in love. Theologians call it the self-substitution of God. And we all know that love is willing to put itself in the place of another. In fact, the more you love someone, the more you're willing to suffer on their behalf. I would die in the place of my family, but I wouldn't suffer a paper cut for my mom's cat. <laughs> Maybe her dog. But I would, I would die in the place of my family because I love them. God does that at the cross. He's dying for our sins as our substitute because that's what love does. Jesus died for our sins in our place. Number three, Jesus died to display the mercy and justice of God. Here's the tension. If God ignores our sin and law-breaking, he would seem unjust, like a judge who refuses to throw the book at an obviously guilty party or criminal. And yet on the other side, if God doesn't do anything about our predicament as guilty sinners, he would seem unloving like a father who renounces his children when they get into trouble. If God forgives sin, he seems unjust. If God doesn't forgive sinners, he seems unloving, justice or mercy, mercy or justice. There's a tension. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. He writes, there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely, declared in the right with God freely by his grace through redemption, rescue that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement so we could be at one with God again through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Think about that last line. That God presented Jesus on the cross to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That God's judgment is demonstrated in punishing sin, condemning sin on the cross, saying to the world how heinous and awful and terrifying sin is through the innocent life of his son while also displaying his love in justifying sinners through faith. If you like, this picture is imperfect, but if you like, the cross acts as a sort of lightning rod. That lightning rods are put on homes in places where lightning storms are frequent. And a lightning rod absorbs the electricity generated by the lightning so that the house doesn't catch on fire. It grounds it. It's like Jesus willingly becomes the lightning rod for God's just judgment against our sin. That Jesus absorbs the righteous wrath in our place so that our lives don't burn up in God's judgment. If God were not just, 
there would be no demand for his son to bear our judgment. If God were not merciful, there would be no willingness for his son to bear our judgment. God is both just and merciful. Therefore, his merciful love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Jesus died to display the mercy and justice of God. They kiss at the cross. Number four, Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins. As Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And sometimes I've thought, you know, like why can't, why can't God just forgive? Like why did Jesus have to die? And it's helped me to consider the nature of forgiveness. Because when we're really wronged, there's this strong sense that the person owes us. There's a debt that should be paid. And we understand this in simple matters, right? Like if you, uh, if you spill coffee on my computer and fry the circuits, I can forgive you, but someone still has to pay for the computer. Either you pay or I release you from the debt and pay myself. And there's something similar to this in relationships, right? If you sin against me, there are two ways I can respond to the debt created by your wrong actions. Right? We, can, we can try to make the person pay. Right? You've done that, so what? I'm going to slander you, I'm going to sue you, attack you viciously, you know, give you the cold shoulder, cancel you, uh, block you on the internet, like all in an attempt to make you pay for what you've done. And it feels so natural. And we would always say, hey, if you knew what they did, you would understand. And, you know, that's true, I understand that. The challenge is this approach makes us an echo of their hostility. And we sink to their behavior and allow it to determine our own. And evil and sin doesn't disappear, it just spreads and it spreads into our own character. We become an echo of their hostility instead of a mirror of God's grace and goodness. The other option is we forgive. Right? Instead of trying to make them pay, you cancel the debt. You don't make them pay. You release them from your hostility, and in doing so, realize you've released yourself from carrying it in your heart. As someone once said, that's why the word forgiveness has the word give in it. Forgiveness is not getting even. It's giving away the right to get even, but it's brutally difficult and painful. Forgiveness is a nice idea until we have to do it. Forgiveness is a nice idea when we're the guilty ones. But when we're the wounded, when we're the sinned against, it is brutally difficult. Tim Keller writes this, he says, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death, like, golly, why do it then? Yes, but it's a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong death of bitterness and cynicism. Why can't God just forgive? 
Because nobody just forgives a serious offense without a cost, and the cost feels like crucifixion. You're willingly putting to death your desire for payback and revenge. It's the very nature of forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus pays the debt our sin has created, and while we alone owed it, only God could pay it, and he did out of love. He absorbs it into his own person out of love for us. He doesn't repay evil for evil. He overcomes evil with grace and forgiveness. Jesus died to forgive our sins, and the cost was great, free for us, costly for him. And then lastly, Jesus died to reveal to us a God who suffers with us. The cross shows us the love of God and his willingness to suffer with us and for us. A question many of us have is in light of evil, how can we trust in God or believe in his goodness? And I don't know how to answer that question personally for you. And I don't know the specific why behind so much that happens. And most attempted answers seem glib and shallow and cold, which only afflicts the already afflicted. And most often, prayerful presence is best sitting in silence. No words are necessary. But in many ways, the cross properly understood is part of God's response to this tension, right? How in the world do we hold together the reality of evil with the reality of God's love and power? It's like these realities are tugging on one another and we can feel it ripping apart inside of us. There's this tension it creates and so sometimes we just wanna resolve the tension by denying God's power or denying God's goodness or denying God's reality or denying the reality of evil just to ease the tension and into the tension comes the cross and the cross tells us that evil is real, sin is real, that's why Jesus had to die. But the cross also tells us God's love is real, that is why Jesus was willing to die. And Easter Sunday tells us God's power is real, stronger even than the grave, which is why death itself will one day die. And as John Stott once wrote, quote, I can never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I think our broken world needs a suffering God hanging on a tree. A forsaken God in what feels at times to be a God-forsaken world is the paradox at the heart of the Christian tradition. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the point and place where God seemed most absent. He was present in Christ. God doesn't just know about our suffering. God himself suffered. And on our darkest Friday, on our most despairing day, when it seems the heavens mock us with silence and sorrow has shrouded our soul with a cloak of lead. And when getting out of bed seems impossible under the heaviness of a hundred pounds of invisible sadness, when we're bowed beneath the weight of the world's concerns, 
and brought low. Low enough to taste the blood and sweat and dust and confusion and agony and tears of our human condition. On Good Friday, we encounter a God who's gone lower still. A God in the soil with us. Strung up with our sins and sorrows. Not removed, not aloof, but here, right where we live, shedding tears on earth so he can one day wipe away our tears in heaven. That God in Jesus experienced rejection, heartache, physical agony, and betrayal. He tasted the bitterest parts of human experience. And Jesus did this because he loves us. And whatever happens, I can still worship at the foot of the cross if it's the Son of God hanging there. A God who did not get himself off the hook of suffering or for suffering, but the God who put himself on the hook of suffering for you and for me. So in the words of that old song, when human hearts are breaking under sorrow's iron rod, then we find that self-same aching deep within the heart of God. Why did Jesus die? He died because he loves us. He died for our sins to reconcile us to God. He died so that God could condemn sin at the cross and forgive sinners. He died to identify with a fallen and broken world. He died for us. That's why it's good. And James can come up on the keys. We're about ready to take communion. But Good Friday, it's objectively good whether we believe in it or not. But it becomes good news subjectively for us when we believe it personally. When we believe in the words of the Apostle Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.21. The Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus died for the world. He died for the church, his bride. He died for me. And I wonder if in this moment, on this Good Friday, you could just say that to yourself, just in your mind, in your heart. Repeat these words. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe you even want to close your eyes to remove distractions and just think of that verse. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. For me. And then think of the worst thing you've ever done. Don't hide from it. Don't push away what comes to mind. Think of the most despicable, shameful thing you've said or done. And realize the worst thing you've done can't erase the best thing God's done. The Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. He knew and he saw the worst thing I would ever do. And it didn't change his mind. 
the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Nothing changes that reality. And for every minute I spend thinking of the worst thing I've ever done, I need to spend 10 minutes thinking about the fact of Good Friday, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Say it to yourself again. Ask for faith to believe it. I believe God. But help my unbelief in this moment. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to bear witness to your spirit that that's for you. The Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. And one of the ways we make it personal as a community together is we take communion. And we remember that Jesus' body was given for us and his blood was shed for us to make atonement for our sins. That Jesus lived the life we couldn't live without sin. Then he died the death we should have died for our sins in order to reconcile us to God.